Thank you, choir, for that uh, rendition of that hymn. I've got to say I've sung it many times over the years, but since my dad died last year, it's become one of those special, almost comical meaning hymns because he was in hospital many times and I remember a time when we got a phone call that both my mother and father had been taken into hospital in the middle of the night and they were about four hours in A&E and uh, he'd gone in hospital because he'd tried to pick her up, fallen over himself and gashed his hand so they just bunged both of them in the back of the ambulance and taken them to the local hospital and it was four o'clock and they were both in the same bay and apparently at four o'clock in the morning, just when he's clearly getting a bit bored, my dad started singing along the ward, here I am, Lord. And the nurse came in and pulled them back and she said, you're very cheerful for this time in the morning, aren't you? Uh, so I can never quite sing that hymn without, the, without that kind of comical thing coming into my head. I hope you'll be all right with me sat down just for a bit longer. It's Vacations Sunday. Uh, And traditionally, it's an opportunity and an occasion when the preacher invites people to consider whether they're experiencing a call of God to become, well, usually ordained ministry or local preaching and something like that. Well, let's do that right at the outset. God still calls ordinary people like you and I into such ministries in his church. The Methodist Church of Great Britain in which this particular church stands and is a part actually has great need of ordained ministers at this particular moment in time. Many churches and circuits who want a minister this year, coming this September, won't get one. Uh, The number's less than it was, but partly less than it was, only because circuits have said, we'll make do for another year. But if they didn't do that, we'd be about 50 short And uh, one has to think, what does that mean? It could mean a lot of things. More than that, it's estimated that over a third of those Methodist ministers who, like Tony and I, are active, to use the correct Methodist term, will sit down, which is our posh way of saying retiring and becoming supernumerary ministers, they'll sit down, over a third of us, in the next three to four years. And at the moment, the average number of people being recruited into ordained Methodist ministries year by year is, over the last three years, an average of 34 a year. So we're heading for all sorts of questions about our ministry, our leadership, our mission and ministry. And now I say that not to put the screws on anybody, but just simply to say it wouldn't surprise me at all even if the people themselves who experience a call are very surprised. If God today, even here, even among us, called some of us to be obedient and seek that long road of testing to ordination. There, I've done it. (laughs) However, I'm not one of those who limits the term vocation to ordain ministry, or even in fact, to religious jobs in general. I believe that we all have a vocation in the sense that we're disciples of Jesus, and therefore we're called to do and to be whatever God calls us to do and be. As the words of the Methodist Covenant service that many of you will be familiar with make it clear, Christ has many services to be done. Some are easy, others are difficult, some bring honour and others bring reproach. The key is, you see, 
Are we obedient to the call of God? Are we inhabiting our vocation? Now, with the call of God in our minds, we turn to look at that passage in Exodus uh, that Joseph read for us a few minutes ago about the call of Moses, and we'll be tuning in to some of the lessons that there may be for us as we seek to hear and heed God's call and seek to be obedient to it. And we'll be sticking quite closely to the text this morning. It's not quite an expository sermon, but it would help if you have your order sheet open and you can follow the reading quite, quite easily. Look at verse 1, first of all. It's a very good place to start. Moses led the flock, we read, to the far side of the wilderness to Horeb, the mountain of God. A lot of the Bible translations, before they use the word wilderness, use the word to a remote desert or to a remote place. And sometimes in order for us to hear what God's saying to us, we need to take ourselves off to a place of some solitude or quietness. There's that story of an axe man chopping a tree and the sweat's pouring off him and his young daughter sat there watching and he chops and he chops making less and less impact on this tree stump and his energy's waning and his axe is blunting and his daughter sits there and says, Dad, don't you think you ought to sharpen your axe? I can't, he said, I'm too busy chopping down this tree. And solitude is sometimes necessary the necessary silence and the space for us to hear God speak to us. Solitude's often regarded as a pretty poor thing. If you're in prison, to be in solitary confinement's a punishment. And yet here in the call of Moses, as so often in scripture, solitude is an environment for blessing. Notice how often when God speaks, the context is quietness to those people who have, to use the phrase here, turned aside. Elijah, spoken to God, we read, not in the earthquake, nor in the storm, but through a still, small voice of calm. Or that God's call to Samuel, that young man that comes in the silence of the quiet of a dead of night. And here for Moses, the importance of being in this remote place is that he is quite clearly then tuned to hear God's voice. He's receptive. So that when Moses sees a burning bush that's not burning up on the mountain of the Lord, a holy place, he's somehow ready for God to speak. Do we place ourselves in the places and the attitudes where we give ourselves opportunity to hear what God's saying to us? There's many a person in many a church who surrounded themselves with sound and busyness and stuffed their spiritual fingers in their closed ears and will swear blind that God's not speaking to them at all. But notice this, that the call also comes not just when Moses is in a place of quietness and solitude, this far side of a desert. 
It's also while he's doing his work. He's a shepherd and he's tending the flock of his father-in-law. He's there tending sheep. He's not lying there on his back, taking a few weeks off, staring at the sky and seeing if he can see something in the shapes of the clouds. It's in the routine of his work that enables him to hear God's call. And notice this this strange thing. I'm going to labor this a bit this morning. How the call of God when Moses hears it is actually closely connected to the work he's already doing. He leads sheep and he's going to be asked to lead people. His job is to find new pastors for his flock and he'll be told to lead his people to a promised land. He protects and guides the sheep and he's going to be instructed to be the protector and guide of the people of Israel. Now the call of God doesn't always work completely that way. Sometimes the call of God is to do something unlike you've ever done before. But often the call of God relates quite closely to what you already know and already do just in a kind of changed way. Let me give you a a pretty uh, stark example of that. John Newton, he who wrote Amazing Grace, the converted slave trader, didn't hear the call of God to go on making slaves. He heard the call of God to leave all that behind. But he did continue to use his ability as a senior sailor to bring freedom to all sorts of people for years. So on Vacation Sunday, let's be aware that perhaps we who know how to make money for ourselves or for the company we work for, let's hear God's call what it might mean to make kingdom riches. Let's be aware that doctors and nurses and carers might suddenly know that they might have to change job and work among the poor and needy in a new and a focused way. Let's be aware that teachers may be called to change the context of their teaching. Engineers to start to build wells in parched lands. Builders to build different sorts of homes. Parents to raise different sorts of families, etc., etc., etc. A farmer once thought he'd been called into ministry because he saw a cloud in the sky as he was about in his fields and the clouds definitely spelled out PC. And he said to himself, God wants me to preach Christ. And after three years of trying to be a Methodist local preacher in Cornwall and after several aborted attempts to try, he suddenly realized it probably meant plow corn. Or if you're bringing it up to date, perhaps even now, program computers. Calls to ministry, calls to vocation, come in all sorts of ways. Now look briefly at verse 4. Then God called to him Moses. Moses. The first thing God makes clear is that he, God, the creator of the universe, knows Moses by name. And you've heard this so many times because it's such a constant factor in God's call to people. Samuel, 
Samuel. Mary. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When God calls us, God knows us by name. A living God who reveals himself to us as individual people. Donald English used to say to people training to be local preachers, when they sort of said, I don't know whether God's calling me, he said, if God didn't want you as you, he'd just send everybody a tape recording. Because there's something about you alongside the call of God that God wants. So he calls you by name. Then in the next part of this passage, look at verses 4 and 6. We get lots of clues there about the nature of the God who calls us by name. Here I am, says Moses. Don't come any closer, says God. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. I am the God of. And we become aware of something of the awesomeness, the majesty, the wonder of being called by the Lord God Almighty. I wonder how Moses said, here I am. Did he say it casually like a teenager responding to a mate? Here I am. It's easy, you see, and it's especially easy for people who've been in church a long while. It's easy for us to begin to treat God and the things of God in a casual fashion. To treat the call of God lightly. We skimp on prayer. We abscond from service. Because, in fact, what we're doing in those ways is thinking that our time is more important than God's time. We turn up at worship as unprepared as if we were going to the cinema. And then suddenly, or gradually, God's awe and holiness suddenly come to us. And we realize that when God calls... We're actually being commanded by the Lord of hosts. My own ministry, call to ministry, which is a long, long time ago now, 1793. <laughs> it came about in various ways, but I remember reading a passage from the book of Amos. And it was the lesson that I remember hearing and thinking, that's God saying to me, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? And you get again that impression through the, through the prophets. This is not somebody who shuffles up to you and says in a rather weak way, I've got a job for you to do. This is a divine command. So I don't think here I am by Moses was said at all casually. It was said deferentially and in a kind of, <gasps> which befits you and I whenever we become aware of the call of God about whatever 
The command to take off his shoes reiterates the seriousness of the occasion. And then God lays out God's credentials. As with Isaac and Jacob and Miriam and Joshua and Ruth and Elijah and Elisha and David and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Job and Jeremiah and Amos, God makes clear who he is to Moses. And Moses begins to realize the greatness of God. And what the lesson, what the passage is, is teaching us in a kind of a poetic narrative way is that here is no small God. Because the ancient world was full of gods. But by and large, the ancient world was full of gods who had that territory but not that territory. Who was God of this people but not that people. Who was God of that hill but not that plain. And as Moses hears God speak, he begins to realize, especially as he talks about the Egyptians, the all-powerful reigning race of the time. This is no small God. This is not a God of three fields and a mountain. This is the God of all history and all people. Yes, I am Moses. And I'm calling you. Now look at verses 7 to 9, and this is really, really important. Before God outlines exactly what he wants God to do, and before the call really comes, and the interchange between God and Moses, which we'll get to in a moment, notice how God makes it clear how deeply affected God is by the plight of his people. God, he says, I've seen, I've heard. Their voices have cried out to me. I'm disturbed. I'm angry. I'm going to do something. I'm going to correct injustices. I'm going to lead people to freedom. And you're going to be a part of that. Are you, Lord? Well, that's great. I can't wait to see that come about. Can I come along? How are you going to do it? I've chosen you, says, Mo, says God to Moses. And that's why I have such a broad view of vocation. Because the person who hears that God is just as concerned with the world today and what's happening in it, in all those imponderable, awful, tragic things that are going on in the world today, God raises people up and says... I'm concerned, and I'm sending you. Christ has many services to be done. And Moses responds in a way that's very common to those who think God's calling them. Just press on with the passage. Who am I? He says, who am I? Now, given Moses passed, God could have had a whale of a time with this one. Who are you? Well, you're a person wanted for murder by, for a start. That's who you are. You're a person that's broken one of my commandments even before I've given them to you. Think about that one. God knows 
all our inadequacies. The number of times I sat at Cliff College or in connectional boards for people offering for ministry and they say something like, if only God knew what I was like. And I think, you think he doesn't? God knows our inadequacies, our frailties, our weaknesses, our selfishness, our sinfulness. But God doesn't make mistakes, God corrects mistakes. And he calls. Who am I? Says Moses. You see, one of the characteristics of prophetic call narratives in the Old Testament is that anybody who's called to be a prophet argues about it like crazy. Nobody ever hears in the whole of the Old Testament, I've called you, right then. They all say something to the equivalent of, you've got to be kidding. I want you to note that because that's exactly what some of you are thinking now. But you see, it's all right to argue with God if arguing is the process by which we come further to accept God's will. Raising objections are a natural part of the prophetic process and not automatically a sign of rebellion. And some of us who are wrestling with a sense of call or we don't feel we're fully inhabiting what God wants to do need to note that this morning, God can cope with objectionable disciples. Notice too that God doesn't give up on Moses. It's not kind of, the narrative doesn't go something like, uh, I'm calling you, who am I Lord? Well, if you feel like that, I'll go find somebody else. Indeed, God seems to love Moses all the more, not because he's deliberately belligerent, but because he's authentic about who he is. Finally, note how God responds to Moses' statement, who am I? He just says, I'll be with you. Because ultimately, that's all that matters. The call is not about who Moses is any more than it's about who we are. It's about who is with Moses and who is with us about who we are, but more importantly, who he is. God's not so much interested in ability as availability. Men, women, old, young. And nobody can hear the phrase, I will be with you without thinking of a group of disciples on a hillside when the risen Jesus comes to them and says, I'm going to take my leave now, but here's what I want you to do. Here's the call. Baptize people in the name of, serve people of all races, all places, go. Who are we? And I will be with you always to the end of the earth. From Moses to the start of the Christian church. I must finish. Preachers often issue the challenge, if you were to die tonight, where would you be with God? It's a question worth asking from time to time. Perfectly proper evangelical Christ, uh, Christian question. 
But on vacations question, I want, uh, Sunday, I want to finish with another question. If you're going to live for another 10 or 20 or 30 or more years, how are you going to continue to live as a disciple of Jesus who has at your disposal that time? Salvation is not life insurance. I'm in, it'll be all right when I die. It's life insurance. What kind of life will I live that occupies and fully occupies the calling, the vocation that Jesus has given me? God calls us all to take up our vocations of varying kinds, to respond to God's call, to be obedient, to change the world, and to build the kingdom of God. Let those who have ears to hear this morning, let them hear. Amen.